passage of Scripture can be found in the book of 2 Kings in the Old Testament, the 6th chapter. It's a rather lengthy reading, and so I'm going to read it for us. But as you hear these words and follow along in your own Bible or your bulletin insert, I hope you'll take note of how uh, this confirms other teaching in Scripture like Psalm 46, which says God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in times of trouble. So notice how the text uh, proves that as we uh, hear these words of God. I'll begin to read at verse 8. Once when the king of Syria was warring against Israel, he took counsel with his servants saying, At such and such a place shall be my camp. But the man of God sent word to the king of Israel, Beware that you do not pass this place, for the Syrians are going down there. And the king of Israel sent to the place about which the man of God told him. Thus he used to warn him, so that he saved himself there more than once or twice. And the mind of the king of Syria was greatly troubled because of this thing, And he called his servants and said to them, Will you not show me who of us is for the king of Israel? And one of his servants said, None, my lord, O king. But Elisha the prophet who is in Israel tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. And he said, Go and see where he is that I may send and seize him. It was told him, Behold, he is in Dothan. So he sent there horses and chariots and a great army, and they came by night and surrounded the city. When the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, Alas, my master, what shall we do? He said, Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. And when the Syrians came down against him, Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, Please strike this people with blindness. So he struck them with blindness in accordance with the prayer of Elisha. And Elisha said to them, This is not the way, and this is not the city. Follow me, and I will bring you to the man whom you seek. And he led them to Samaria. As soon as they entered Samaria, Elisha said, O Lord, open the eyes of these men that they may see. So the Lord opened their eyes, and they saw, and behold, they were in the midst of Samaria. As soon as the king of Israel saw them, he said to Elisha, My father, shall I strike them down? Shall I strike them down? He answered, You shall not strike them down. Would you strike down those whom you have taken captive with your sword and with your bow? Set bread and water before them that they may eat and drink and go to their master. So he prepared for them a great feast. And when they had eaten and drunk, he sent them away and they went to their master. And the Syrians did not come again on raids into the land of Israel. I realize that today is not a Kirking of the Tartan service. We normally do that at the end of October, but I do want us to begin talking about a little bit of Scottish history. Almost 250 years before 
the Scottish Reformation, which was basically in 1560, a great battle took place in Stirling, Scotland, in June of 1314. It's known as the Battle of Bannockburn, where Robert I of Scotland, also known as Robert the Bruce, attacked Stirling Castle and laid it under siege. And you may be thinking, well, why would a Scottish leader attack a Scottish castle? Because it was full of English soldiers. And King Edward II of England heard about this siege and brought a considerable force to Scotland to aid his troops locked up in the castle. And as he drew near for battle, he saw the Scottish army, as was their custom, kneel in prayer. And he turned and said to an aide, Look, they kneel for mercy. The aide replied, Yes, they kneel for mercy, but not from you. These men will conquer or die. Well, if you don't know the rest of the story, as Paul Harvey used to say, the superior forces from England were defeated by the Scottish army that day, and Robert the Bruce won what has been called the greatest victory in the history of Scotland. He drove the British from his land and secured his position as King of Scotland, and Edward never set foot into Scotland again for the rest of his life. Now, as an aside... Sterling is important in our own Associate Reform Presbyterian history because more than 400 years later after this battle, Ebenezer Erskine was called to become pastor of the Sterling Church in 1731 and stayed there until his death in 1754. And of course, Ebenezer Erskine was one of the four men who were fed up with what the the mainline church of Scotland was doing and the way they were treating Scripture, and, and they formed an associate presbytery which grew by leaps and bounds. And this more conservative group, as they grew, they became the denomination known as the Associate Presbyterians, which is the associate side of our name. But to get back... To the point of the story, the point of this battle of Blackburn, is that King Edward came with his English army into battle, what he saw as a physical battle, where I'm sure he thought he would win because he had superior forces, some 20,000 English troops as opposed to seven or at most 8,000 Scottish troops. But the Scots came putting their trust in God, praying on the field of battle. And that day, God allowed them to gain the victory. And this story helps us to understand that, first of all, so often in our lives we fail to recognize or give credit to the spiritual world that is all around us. Instead, we come in our own strength, our own abilities, which is often coming in our own ignorance, thinking that our plans are fine when in reality we don't know what we're doing. And we can see this so clearly here in this passage in 2 Kings 6. 
This Syrian king, and by the way, some translations say Arameans. It's all, all the same group of people. They had all sorts of plans, or he did, for what must have been uh, guerrilla-style warfare from various platoons of his army. And by his skillful strategy, he hoped to take the Israelites by surprise. But all of his plans and motives were made useless because the king of Israel always seemed to know exactly where his little platoons were going to be and what they were going to do. In fact, this happened so often that he began to be suspicious. He suspected a mole in his own inner circle. And we see his frustration boil over in our passage in verse 11 when he says, Will you not show me who of us is for the king of Israel? Well, a servant answers, None, my Lord, but Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. Now notice this servant has more going on spiritually than the person in authority or power. And that's a motif we see quite often in Scripture. The the chapter preceding our chapter, 2 Kings 5, has the story of Naaman, you know, the Syrian general who, who has leprosy. And his little servant girl says to him, you know, if if you were in the land of Israel, that prophet He could heal you. And here we see the same kind of thing happening in our text. Israel's God informs Elisha of every move that the enemies are making. We always have to remember that there's more to this world then we can see, now that's not what our society teaches us. Our society teaches us it's all about science. It's all about what you can see and touch and feel. That's all you can believe in. But Scripture teaches us exactly the opposite. Is this not part of Paul's point? When he writes to the church at Ephesus, the sixth chapter, saying, put on the whole armor of God. And why do we need to put on the armor of God? For we are not contending against flesh and blood. We're not fighting against those things you can see and touch and feel but against the principalities, against the powers, against the world rulers of this present darkness, against the spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. We always have to remember this scriptural truth as we live our lives each day. We are not fighting as Christian people against flesh and blood, but against spiritual powers. And we can learn what not to do from the Syrian king's example. For when he's faced with this possibility of a spiritual world, the fact that Elisha the prophet already knows what he's going to do before he gets his army there, what does he do? He tries to put more faith and trust in his strengths. He gets a bigger army. He sends more horses more chariots. He's going to seize this prophet from Israel and then his troubles will be over. 
course, the Syrian king doesn't know how faith operates. We shouldn't expect him to. But more than once, Israel is reminded of how stupid this type of thinking really is. That we, we can't rely on our own strengths. Isaiah 31 says, Woe to those who rely on horses, who trust in chariots because they are many, and in horsemen because they are very strong, but do not look to the Holy One of Israel. Or think of Psalm 20, verse 7, which says, Some boast of chariots and some of horses, but we boast of the name of the Lord our God. They will collapse and fail, but we shall rise and stand. You see, the king of Syria makes the same mistake that Pharaoh made when he chased after the children of Israel, and you'll remember caught them right there at the Red Sea. He knew his military uh, power was far superior. His army had caught them in no time at all. And he knew the victory was his, but God knew something else. Moses knew something else. But some of the Israelites weren't so sure. They were scared to death because they could see the dust of that Egyptian army coming. And they were scared just like Elisha's servant was scared that morning when he awoke and walked outside. Can you imagine living in ancient times? I mean, the way the text is worded, I didn't look this up geographically, but but uh, where they were at in Dothan must be a kind of valley with hills around because uh, can you imagine being in, in ancient times and walking outside and seeing an army surrounding the city in which you live? Chariots and infantrymen and horses. It would just be a fearsome sight. And we can hear the fear in his words. Master, what shall we do? Now make sure you notice what's happening here. Elisha's servant surely believed in God and served God. Why else would he be serving one of God's prophets if he were not a believer? And yet when it comes time to put his faith to the test, he fails miserably. He's scared out of his wits. He doesn't know what to do. How often does that happen to you and me? You see, we need spiritual vision for all that we face in this life, and yet we fail to think or see spiritually many times. Psalm 34, 7 says, The angel of the Lord encamps round about them that fear him. And not only does he encamp around us, but he delivers them. Elisha knows the truth of that verse, but his servant does not. In this passage, we are taught a lesson that we most often need to learn, and that is that in every hour of trial or suffering or what appears to be defeat, the soul that trusts in God is surrounded if they have eyes trained to see that soul is surrounded with divine spiritual power equal to whatever need there is. Our trouble is not that God's help 
is not there, but that we can't see the way in which He's going to deliver us. We don't recognize His presence, even in our midst. Even when the most terrible thing has happened in our lives, we fail to see Him for who He is and what He's doing, just like those two disciples did on the road to Emmaus that day. Jesus is right with them, walking along with them, unfolding the Word of God to them. And they don't even realize it's Him. How often is that true for you and me? God has to open our eyes. And one way we gain this spiritual vision is to pray for it. Obviously, Elisha has it. But he prays so that his servant will also have that kind of spiritual vision. And you know, we're not just talking about the importance of prayer here for ourselves. Obviously, that's important. But notice that Elisha prays for his servant. That should put the question upon you and me, for whom do we pray? What kind of help are we being to other people as we pray for them and what they need in their lives? And not only do we need to pray for it, but we also need to be willing to experience what God has for us in order to see the glory of the Lord and to know Him. You remember what Jesus used to say to His disciples even before they were His disciples? I mean, when they were wondering about following Him and maybe where He was staying and they wanted to find out more about Him. And we can read that in John 1 one day when two of John the Baptist's disciples were We're walking along with John the Baptist and John sees Jesus and he says, look, there goes the Lamb of God. And those two disciples of John the Baptist, they turned and started following Jesus. And Jesus sees them and said, what do you seek? And they said, "Uh, teacher, we want to know where you're staying. And you remember what Jesus says? He says, "Come come and see. Come and see. And we have to realize that's still our invitation today. To come to Jesus. Jesus says, Come unto me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart and you shall find rest for your souls. You see, Jesus always is there giving that invitation. He stands at the door and knocks, Scripture tells us. It's the door of our hearts. It's the good news of the gospel that even the sinners that we are, Jesus comes to us and says, follow me. Come and see. You want to know where I'm staying? Come and see. It's sort of interesting to me that that phrase is found in Psalm 66. You know, that's a psalm that starts just like Psalm 100, make a joyful noise to God, all the earth. Sing the glory of His name. Give to Him 
glorious praise. And a few verses later, that psalm continues in verse 5 saying, Come and see what God has done. Did Jesus have that phrase in mind as he mentions it to his disciples? I don't know. I think he did. And notice what that phrase is all about. Come and see what God has done. That's action on the part of you and me. Yes, God has done marvelous works, but you and I need to come and see what it is that He's done, what it is that He's doing, what it is that He's ready to do. Where are you willing to go and what are you willing to to look for or search in order to see what God has done and is doing? Remember what Jeremiah 29 tells us about God. You will seek me and find me. When you seek me with all your heart, I will be found by you, says the Lord. I think when we boil it all down, what we see in this example of Elisha the prophet is action guided by God's Word all the way through consistently. Elisha knows there's a spiritual world. He knows that God is sovereign, that God is in control just as His Word teaches. He also knows it's futile to trust in the things we see or those circumstances and and strengths we believe we control. You know, if God's in control, that means you and I are not in control and so we don't control any strengths or circumstances or things that we think we bring to a certain situation. Rather, we put our trust in God and in those things that are unseen. In other words, we, we, we choose to walk by faith. And you remember how Hebrews 11 defines faith. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And I believe when practiced, and you know that word practice means discipline, when practiced, faith gives us the ability to see beyond the normal perception. We become like those servants in the text. We can see things that other people aren't seeing. Elisha had this kind of vision and we see it so clearly in his words to his servant in verse 16 when he says, don't be afraid for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And you know, the Apostle John gives us the same kind of perception in his first letter, the fourth chapter, when he says, he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. You and I have to always know that and believe it even when things aren't going our way, even when things are hard and the future is uncertain, even when it seems like that evil wins every single time. This is what Elisha does. You know, as this... Syrian army comes down to him. I'm sure thinking they were going to take him by force. He prays to the Almighty and living God. 
And notice he doesn't pray for the destruction of these enemies. He prays for their distraction. He prays that they be blinded. And they are. And that's not the normal Hebrew word for blindness there in that text. It means a blindness that's brought on by some kind of blinding light so that you become where you can't see and you're disoriented, sort of like Saul on the Damascus Road in the book of Acts where he's blinded by this great light. And it's the same kind of thing for these Syrian soldiers. Once Elisha leads them to Samaria, and the text means there the capital city, not the general geographical area of Samaria, but the capital city of the northern kingdom, Notice the exchange between Elisha and Israel's king. The king sees this as a wonderful opportunity for a great victory. And why shouldn't he? I mean, all of a sudden his his enemies have been delivered right there in front of him. All that's left to do is certainly kill them. But he asks for permission. Shows you the, the power that Elisha had because of God's hand upon him. Shall we strike them down? And Elisha says, no. And our English Bible doesn't make it this clear, but really what the text is saying is Elisha basically says, are these your prisoners? Did you win them in battle? They're not yours to make some decision about. God will make that decision. And so Elisha follows God's word once again has a meal prepared for them. And what I mean by following God's word there is if you look in Proverbs 25, you read this. If your enemy hungers, give him food to eat. If he's thirsty, give him water to drink. In doing this, you'll heap burning coals upon his head and the Lord will reward you. Now if you're thinking, I thought that was in the New Testament. You can read it in Romans 12 where Paul quotes Proverbs 25. So the enemy is fed. They're released to return to their own land unharmed and we're told that the border wars ceased. That means for a period of time. In other words, Israel was rewarded by God for Elisha's actions in taking his word and applying it to a very stressful and dangerous situation. And this reminds you and me that God is always at work. He's at work in things as large as kingdoms of the world and he's at work in something as small as your life and my life. And so we need to ask ourselves, what do we see when we look at our own individual lives? Are you walking in your own strength? Or do you see the power of God at work and His willingness to use you in what He's accomplishing in His world and in His kingdom? As Psalm 66 teaches us, come and see what God has done. Come and see what God is doing. Praise is always a wonderful weapon, just as prayer. 
And it helps us to triumph over all of the things that the world throws at us. For like Paul reminds Timothy, God did not give us a spirit of fear. Well, what did God give us? Paul goes on to tell Timothy, He gave us a spirit of power, power through the work of His Holy Spirit in your heart and in your life and in His world each and every day. He gave us a power of love, love that we know about because of God's gift of His own Son, Jesus, who came into the world to die on the cross for your sins and for my sins. We know what love is because... God first loved us in Christ. And He gives us a spirit of self-control. That's a fruit of the Spirit. He gives us that. All that's valuable in our spiritual lives to us comes by the power of the Holy Spirit who infuses us to live the life that God has called us to live in the first place. And I don't know about you, but that sounds like good news to me. Amen. Amen. Let's pray.